Hey everyone, Artie here. So for today's main feed episode, we're unlocking our conversation from a few weeks ago where B, Jules, and I reviewed the Biden fall winter COVID plan and then weighed in rather early on in the still ongoing immunity debt discourse. There's a couple of reasons for this unlock. One is that B has some medical stuff to take care of this week. The other is that between last week's public episode on long COVID media narratives and our huge interview with Jasbir Poir in the patron feed, uh, which I highly recommend everyone go listen to, we're going to give everyone a chance to catch up a little bit. Um, but also, for those of you who have to attend a family gathering this week, whether that's by choice or not, um, we thought this might be a good episode you can just put on and, you know, ruin the vibe. Except maybe if you do that, start the episode right here, like at whatever time code this is, so they don't hear that. Speaking of ruining holidays, as of this week, Health Communism is officially back in stock at Verso. If you haven't gotten the book already, it's currently 40% off for their holiday sale. And when you get it direct from the publisher, it comes with a free ebook copy. So as always, consider picking one up for yourself, a family member it might make uncomfortable, or a friend or enemy. One final note on this episode is that while the Biden administration did announce a small update to their COVID plan this week, uh, what they added was very narrowly targeted. And Anthony Fauci even said in the press conference announcing it of masking, quote, now we're not talking about requirements or mandating. What we're talking about is if you're in a situation and each individual person evaluates their own risk and that of the risk of their family members, unquote. So you get the picture. It's more of the same, and what we say in the following show stands. So anyway, if you enjoy this episode, please become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod so you can be the first to hear episodes like this or like our interview with Jasbir Poir and much more. And we'll see you all with a brand new episode in the patron feed on Monday. Let me be as plain as I, let me be as plain as I can. We still have hundreds of people dying each day from COVID in this country, hundreds. That number is likely to rise this winter. And here's the bottom line. Virtually every COVID death in America is preventable. Virtually everyone. Almost everyone who will die from COVID this year will not be up to date on their shots, or they will not have taken Paxlovid when they got sick. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. We've been so overwhelmed with the response to Health Communism so far in a really good way. It's been wonderful to hear from everyone who's read it or is starting to read the book. And I know since it's sold out from the Verso website on launch day, some people have had a hard time finding a hard copy of the book. So there is a link to a thread with a bunch of local bookstores who are carrying it in store and online in the episode description. Verso is also doing a second printing, which will be available in late November. So if your local bookstore doesn't have it, they will still be able to order a copy for you. It just might not arrive until end of November. 
Also, the Death Panel Reading Group is going to get started up again soon in our Discord to read Health Communism together. I'm not going to be leading those. Our Discord mod Lola, who is so awesome, will be taking my place. I'm so grateful for Lola for taking over for me. Their critical disability analysis is really on point, and I think they're going to be an amazing facilitator. So we will be joining for a few sessions towards the end to discuss it all together, but Lola will be leading the Health Communism Reading Group sessions starting on November 17th, and a link to join the Discord is also in the episode description. Anyways, with all that out of the way, today we have a COVID episode. Artie, Jules, and I are here, and the three of us have a lot to get into. It's been a little bit since we've been able to do a proper COVID check-in. So much has happened since our last one a couple weeks ago, and we're now fully heading into COVID Winter 3. The past year so far has been, as we've been saying for months, a long process of normalizing mass infection, and COVID normalization is near fully solidified. It's harsh, and data has grown hazy, spottier than it already was. The CDC reporting on data has dropped from a daily to a weekly basis, And still between September 28th and October 26th, there were over 11,400 confirmed COVID deaths in the United States. That's about 400 deaths a day for 28 days. And of course, the plan to transition COVID care, therapeutics, and vaccines to the private market is still underway. And meanwhile, I know this is a lot, but there has been a lot of updates. Mainstream COVID coverage has barreled full tilt into the lockdowns were worse than the COVID itself era, with discourse emerging asserting that pandemic protections created a so-called immunity debt. So first, let's get into the Biden administration's newly released fall COVID plan, which includes a fall playbook for businesses and a really, you know, this is where I want to start, actually. The, 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 play, the fall COVID plan, though, includes a partnership between Walgreens, Uber, and DoorDash to basically do sort of a focused protection expansion. I swear I'm not joking. Let me just read the White House's fact sheet on the fall plan. Quote, Walgreens, Uber, and DoorDash are stepping up to answer the president's <laughs> call to action by increasing access to COVID-19 treatments. Walgreens is working with Uber and DoorDash to provide free delivery of prescriptions of Paxlovid, an oral COVID-19 treatment, directly to the doorsteps of Americans living in underserved communities. Patients with a prescription for Paxlovid being filled at Walgreens who live in a socially (laughs) vulnerable community based on the CDC's Social Vulnerability Index will be able to have their Paxlovid prescription delivered to their home through Uber Health and DoorDash at no cost via Walgreens.com and the Walgreens app. So, I mean, this is like one of the most typically Biden administration ways to handle something like making sure that people have access to the tools. I mean, this, okay, this whole plan, which is just like a series of advertisements, um, kind of has like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not a Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, you know, audience member in any particular way, but it had real like, we've assembled an incredible team. Imagine Walgreens, Uber, and DoorDash all working together. And it's like the private sector really coming together, really coming together. <laughs> but in a, such a specific way, it turns out like patients with a prescription for Paxlovid. Okay, you already have to have that being filled at Walgreens. So you already have to have customer loyalty, living in a socially vulnerable community based on CDC social vulnerability. So there's like literally actually a lot of very narrow criteria. Then something called Uber Health, which, you know, I'm 
just like so horrified I even know that phrase exists, then that could happen if you are on Walgreens.com or use the Walgreens app. I mean, it's just an incredible product placement. I mean, the way that accessibility is being dressed up through its exact antithesis is just kind of incredible. And this idea that, you know, being sick with COVID is just sort of like, you know, living at your home hotel, getting, you know, (laughs) stunning deliveries, free deliveries to your house all the time. I mean, just such a fascinating, and the rest of that whole plan that they released, I mean, every single bullet point is an ad for a large (laughs) company. I mean, it goes through every single like grocery store chain and it tells you, literally tells you what kinds of like coupons you can get at each different pharmacy chain that you might get your, uh, you know, your booster shot at. So it's just really kind of an, it, I, I guess I, I'll admit, I don't, you know, often um, have to, to read too much directly from the White House. So maybe I was a little uh, unaware of how much these things had drifted, but I, I just couldn't believe I was sitting there reading like a blow by blow about why I should love every single of the three pharmacy chains that apparently exist in this country, which now provide all public health uh, and apparently will, you know, solve all of our problems. Yeah, I think this is in many ways the sort of most explicit that they've gotten about that those uh, partnerships so Mm. far, especially as you're mentioning with that list uh, of different private companies that will, you know, that from from which you can get the vaccine along with a coupon. I think the thing that this makes me think I've been joking a lot recently that essentially I or one of us is going to have to essentially write a version of Walter Benjamin's arcades project, except for <laughs> instead of being about like 19th century Parisian, the equivalent of malls, it'll have to be about essentially how in the 21st century liberals in the United States view CVS and like private pharmacy chains as the center of civic life mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really best <laughs> illustrated also by even like the the press event that was put together to like, like I want to get into obviously the deep more of the details the few that there are in this you know quote unquote new plan uh in in a second I think it's fair to say as we'll get into this is kind of the least that they've tried so far um it's both the shortest plan or like full uh winter guideline guidebook or whatever that they've released so far but also it's like by far i think even the least ambitious um so i think we'll get into that in a second but i I do want to highlight for example at the event that they set up to like on the same day that this plan was released um at the event that they set up to promote it showing president biden getting the bivalent booster the updated covid booster Mm -hmm. um in front of a audience directly behind him standing directly behind him were like the usual suspects like you know Fauci and uh and Ashish Jha and people like that but also were executives from (laughs) CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens and uh, Albertsons etc. I'm here today with uh, my COVID team as well as leaders from some of America's top pharmacies Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Albertsons They're all stepping up to help more people get vaccinated. Some are offering coupons when people get their updated COVID shots. Get the shot, five, 10, $20 off your drugstore grocery purchase next, or grocery purchase next time at the same time you get the shot. And others from the private sector are stepping up as well. And, you know, I don't think you can see like a more literalized manifestation of this being their vision for public health, especially as they're kind of like 
you know, moving very quickly and I guess mostly silently really towards the point where like starting at the beginning of next year, the federal government is stepping outside of all of this COVID treatment and care. And it really is going to be entirely kicked to these private entities. Yeah. And I I think it was just kind of fascinating to go through both, you know, their kind of the limited materials that they put out and also this this two paged fall playbook for businesses to manage (laughs) COVID-19 and protect workers. Stuff employers like to do, like protecting their employees. (laughs) Yeah, famously. And and I feel like, you know, these are these are just fantastic examples of a couple things. One is the problem with access language in general, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can claim that all of this stuff is doubling down on or rising to the challenge of or, you know, increasing affordable access to like the tools as they've you know used this kind of framework of of essentially sort of talking about access to COVID protections as if the the average, the sort of average experience is one of someone who has really good health insurance and the time and energy, technological expertise, internet access, spatial access to um, these chains that they're partnering with, but also has a kind of employer that's willing to rise up to the challenge of the Biden administration's essentially like two-page press release about things they should do, maybe. And this is sort of what's standing in place of like the the rhetoric that they use during the campaign cycle of like, we're going to come out with OSHA regulations. We're going to have this big public health workforce. Now it's, oh, well, we always plan to transition everything to the private market. And, you know, really the issue that we're looking at now is that we're having this kind of chaos because without the funding from Congress, we can't have a quote unquote orderly transition to the private market, but it's going to happen either way, whether that funding comes through or not. And so this kind of framing of like, oh, you know, we're just sitting here with our hands tied, like begging businesses to do better. And, you know, by the way, like this program that is is federally funded, where a lot of the money is just going to pour right into private companies like CVS and Uber and whatever. Oh, by the way, this is so heavily means tested using like census data, which like there's a whole other sort of problem there and using the 2020 census in order to sort of determine this, right? This is something the that's, social vulnerability index. I mean, yeah, this yeah. is something that's a kind of gradient, right? Like there are four different layers of social vulnerability levels that counties can be labeled as. And this is updated every two years based on census data. So like this is not something that like the average person is going to know, like that they're in a socially vulnerable county. What do you mean, B? The things that you know, your area code, your zip code, the county, the name of the county you're in, classically all these things that people know. And of course, your social vulnerability index. Everyone knows their SVI, right? right? Yeah, yeah no. And, and so you have, of course, this kind of administrative burden of needing the prescription, right? Like no mention of like what someone's access to uh, healthcare actually would be to get that prescription in the first place. So then that person has to be able to go online and look up their county, presumably, in order to sort of see if they're in a qualifying county, then go and access this program, right? It's, it's the perfect example of sort of how administrative burdens are really put in place to create the idea of like a point of universal access, but then slowly partition out and weed people out and slow down the process in order to deal with the fact that like there are never there was never intended to be like resources to meet the demand of people who are going to need 
help getting a Paxlovid prescription in the first place. Right. It just gives you like a talking point. Like you get to say this. It, it gives you the maximum amount of saying you're doing something because it's quite long to explain, in fact, what you're even doing <laughs> yeah. while doing precisely nothing at all. Right. And, you know, that's exactly sort of what is part of this fall playbook. Essentially, that's what the playbook is that they're proposing to employers, which is like make broad commitments that come with so many qualifying conditions and exceptions. And none of this is anything other than a sort of loose suggestion. And that's how we're going to protect workers, TM, you know, moving into essentially like a a wave that is going to be harder to track and harder to like understand in terms of like personal risk calculus, which has been sort of the whole way that they've been encouraging people to think about, you know, their pandemic protections has been sort of down to the individual level. And now with these sort of changes in reporting, I think what we're going to see is just People are going to be more confused than ever about what's going on because they are going to be sort of receiving this message of like both the pandemic is over and you urgently need to get boosted, but everything's going to be fine and we can prevent virtually all deaths and there is access to Paxlovid and the tools and we've set up all these things to take care of all the people, you know, that that you might be worried about just keep you keep your head down and keep going like no mention of masking you know the, the, there are these kind of framings of like the Biden administration's plan for the fall is to keep their head down and usher us toward the private market transition so that things are off their plate responsibility wise and also funding wise yeah it's it's really quite perverse I mean I'm just like you know kind of scanning through these documents and seeing the repetition of the same verbs like encourage increase awareness no joke yeah. take the clean air in buildings challenge make a it's a, just a challenge you know it's sort of like a cool thing you could you know maybe have um an unmasked lunchtime you know meeting about or something and <laughs> like you know there's just something really I, i'm just sort of sitting with you know kind of the way that all of this infusion of money into the private sector is sort of obviously tied to it clearly not being spent on like anything that will help anyone, right? Because you create this sort of, you know, infrastructure setup where, you know, if you couple that with no no obvious publicly available data, then it's just like, okay, well, technically, you know, maybe at some point your employer encouraged you to know that Paxlovid exists, but like you have no idea what your local, you know, positivity rate is, or is like very little reporting on deaths. And so it's like, you have really, you know, no way to connect those dots unless you're intensely motivated. And it just feels really interesting to me that then, you know, we're sort of not just shifting the burden, right, but actually like moving whatever public funds still exist squarely into the private sector at precisely the same moment where when you kind of look at how all these things work, because it sets up such a difficult chain of events in order to access anything, probably that money is going to be, you know, spent the least that it has ever been spent on people actually getting things. And there's something just like, it almost feels like, you know, back in the day, like in the late 19th century, when the, you know, federal governments would be like, I'm going to give a 99 year lease to this company to like <laughs> yes. have yeah. this, you know, to like take this island for, that we're going to completely destroy in the Pacific, you know, to manufacture one chemical for like, I don't know, bombs or something, right? Like it feels <laughs> very like we've, you know, of course we knew all along we were giving CVS and Walgreens a 99 year lease on public health, but there's something about the logic of inevitability here that I find really 
weird. I mean, it has to do with this broader revisionist history that we're being treated to right now. All of these articles going on, you know, all of the moral panic around learning loss and all of this sort of like, but no, Emily this Oster's was... Declar- Emily Oster's declaration of uh, we need a pandemic amnesty. Amnesty yeah. because we've committed crimes because we've killed so many people. <laughs> us, us not, but, not Oster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but it's actually okay because that, like this really weird... Like the logic to me, apologies from my former English professor self coming out, is this very like, no one could have ever seen this coming in 2020. It was this earth shattering event. You know, we deserve lots of um, grace for having made terrible decisions that endangered and killed, you know, millions of people. That's totally fine. But also this was always how it was going to go. We were always going to switch over to this completely privatized model where almost no one will have access to these supposedly miraculous, you know, treatments. And, you know, we were always going to do this, right? We were always going to Except then at the same time, we're hearing these other contradictory voices that are like, oh, no, you know, we have to do this now. We should have done this faster, actually, because, you know, there's too much RSV, you know, spreading right now. So it just like there's something really kind of pernicious to me about the way that we're sort of being asked to understand in real time that this very substantial shrinking of public health infrastructure, like to on a scale that we've never seen before, which means that like, again, you know, in 10 years, like CVS and Walgreens will be the only place to get anything. Um, you know, like that, that as if that was like what we had all agreed to do, like as if there was some sort of social contract everyone had signed somehow like before 2020 and yet somehow 2020 just like now, you know, reinforces the fact that this was truly our destiny. Right. And Mm -hmm. this use of access language, I think like that's, what's just making my blood boil right now is like this really bizarre, it's giving the same energy as like (laughs) on Twitter. Sorry to say this when people are like, well, you can't criticize the clothing company, you know, Cheyenne, because that's like, you know, because if you're poor, that's the only place you can buy clothes. It's like giving that kind of like <laughs> broken logic around how like political economy works. Um, and, you know, or I'm just like, wait, hold on. Like, what, what, what are we trying to say here? Like, this is really it. Like, this is somehow, I don't know. I'm just like the manufacturing of consent right now has become... On the one hand, really, like, really fevered. And on the other hand, so lazy, right? Like, I really, Mm -hmm. you know, like, it just really feels like the White House is phoning it in, in some sense. And it's just sort of like, I dare anyone to care because we've created the perfect environment where there's no data or information for people to care about. Right. Like just like the general public can't know anything. And so I just feel like they're sitting back smugly, you know, and kind of smirking and I don't know. It just really, uh, it just makes me so angry. No, absolutely. And I'm glad that you um, put it that way, that they're just kind of get that it's just lazy, actually, so mm-hmm. so much of it, not just the, uh, you know, obviously, the, the quote, unquote, plan is certainly lazy. It's just, you know, regular consultant speak from them. But also, um, even the rhetoric that they're using towards it, and the degree to which they are sort of like downplaying, they're now downplaying COVID sort of without even actively trying to, I think, downplay it but by simply omitting it or for example as something I'll, I'll probably mention a little bit later like conflating it with other respiratory viruses for example mm-hmm. as though the impact is the same the one thing that i do think is interesting is like i mean both of you mentioned for example how we're increasingly 
flying in the dark in terms of not knowing. And by increasingly, I mean, obviously, this has been the narrative this entire year. But, you know, we're exceptionally unaware, I think, of at, at this moment, what actually the picture of COVID infections and deaths, you know, truly probably looks like because there's just so like the the information is just not being gathered and reported in the same way. But anyway, I think what's interesting about that is, you know, B, you mentioned like the uh, assertion that like, oh, we should we should do this um, as has been a drumbeat over the course of the pandemic. We should do this like personal risk assessment to decide what our risk is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned accurately that as you're both talking about, there's like not as much you can't even do that anymore, which even uh, Mm -hmm. our fave Emily Oster admitted a couple months ago, as we talked about on the show. But like the interesting thing is the the laziness of the rhetoric now is so profound that basically I think they've sort of doubled back on, they've now realized sort of that they can't just do the, Oh, like, you know, figure out your risk score or whatever. So the message is essentially, and I'll, um, I have quotes to back this up basically, but like the message is essentially now, well, if you get the updated booster, you basically have no risk. So you should do that. And then, Despite the fact that obviously in an environment with no masking, we can't claim that at all because it only just started rolling out and we don't know what the like long term efficacy or how increased the efficacy possibly could be of the vaccine yet, et cetera, et cetera. We, sure we won't are know for some time. fucking around and finding out. Yeah, though. so we're sure <laughs> fucking around and finding out. But now, like, li- listen to this. Um, this is actually comments. So, uh, comments from that PR event that uh, mm-hmm. Biden gave. I mm. just want to read a couple of these. Um, this is again that thing I mentioned where he's like flanked by executives from Albertsons and Walgreens <laughs> Boots Alliance and shit like that. And it's like, um, you know, stop me if any of this sounds familiar, basically. <laughs> Here, here's Biden quote, as a country, you know, we we have a choice to make. Can we repeat what happened in past winters? I think he meant we can repeat what happened in past winters, but whatever. We can repeat what happened in past winters. More infections, more hospitalizations, more loved ones getting sick, even dying from the virus. Or we can have a much better winter if we use all the tools we have available to us now. Um, Going on to say, if you get it, the vaccine, if you get it, you're protected. If you don't, you're putting yourself and other people at unnecessary risk. Uh. Let me be as plain as I can. We still have hundreds of people dying each day from COVID in this country. Hundreds. That number is likely to rise this winter. But this year is different from the past. This year, nearly every death is preventable. Here's the bottom line. This is the the final bit of the quote. Here's the bottom line. Virtually every COVID death in America is preventable. Virtually every one. Almost everyone who will die from COVID this year will not be up to date on their shots oh or they will not have taken Paxlovid when they got sick. Unquote. So that's, so, that's you know. clearly what, when people talk about dark Brandon, it's the grim reaper president, apparently who's like, mm-hmm. you will die and it will be your fault because you're a bad person. <laughs> but this is exactly what I mean by like the exact right way to say it is this is lazy because it yes. is, they're mm-hmm. recycling um specifically two things one is this sounds exactly to me like last year when biden said quote for the unvaccinated we are looking at a winter of severe illness and death for themselves for their families and for the hospitals they'll soon overwhelm unquote and of course it sounds more than a little like the pandemic of the unvaccinated line because Mm -hmm. the last line of that quote is quite literally 
well, you know, it's on you if you, you know, it, it's like a pandemic of the unboosted thing, you know, right. like it's on you if you're not boosted and it's on you even if you were boosted and you had a breakthrough infection, if you didn't get Paxlovid on time, if you didn't, you know, do as B is mentioning this like whole little operation with like figuring out your social vulnerability index. I know that's not the only way to get Paxlovid. I'm just saying like, you know, for the people that they're imagining as this the, is their the kind vulnerable, of, yeah, the extra their vulnerable, this is what they want. Plan. To, yeah. No, and absolutely. It's one of those things too, where, you know, if you look through all of the documents and for example, you search for masking, the only time masking mm-hmm. is ever mentioned, for example, uh, it doesn't come up once in the fact sheet, which Jules, I think you described as one big advertisement for Walgreens and Rite Aid and CVS and Albertsons, which basically just sort of congratulates all the companies that they're partnering with. So not masking is not mentioned once, right? But of course, it's all about the Thanksgiving holidays. In the Clean Air and Buildings Pledge Opportunity Challenge, masking (laughs) is not mentioned once. In the Fall Playbook for Businesses to Manage COVID and Protect Workers, however, it is mentioned once. Um, In Section 3, Improve Indoor Air and Quality Across Buildings, and they say... At a time where COVID-19 community levels are lower and fewer people are masking, the threat of transmission still persists. But more passive measures like improving indoor air quality will help reduce the risk and spread of this airborne virus and others. So that is the extent of them basically pushing for NPIs. Everything else, you see this kind of like uh, just like thesaurus, like recycling of the talking points, right? It's like the, the talking point just gets iterated on and iterated on and iterated on and they don't actually ever say anything. You know, they say, uh, for example, in the in the Clean Air and Buildings Challenge Pledge, they basically just say that what it is, is essentially a boss signing on to create an indoor air action plan. And then, um, you know, optimizing fresh air ventilation in the building. And then step three is taking steps toward improving HVAC. So this is not even like and then step four, by the way, is engage in building community. So like, Ah. (laughs) you know, it's all just abstract bullshit. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like making a PowerPoint. Yeah, they're like, oh, we hope like landlords and building owners will take the pledge to like go talk to all of their corporate clients in their office buildings that they own and explain why they won't be upgrading the ventilation of the building and why they're just, you know, going to have like outdoor happy hours once a month instead of indoor happy hours in the basement. And it's it's this kind of framework of like, you know, this this facade of, oh, we are we're checking in with the vulnerable. We've got something for them. We've got something for them. Everybody's needs are taken care of. You don't really have to worry about anyone except for yourself. And of course, you know, it's incredibly difficult to get a picture of sort of where you are in the world relative to COVID. And I think that Emily Oster piece from the summer that you brought up already is something that's really been on my mind where she says to people like, oh, you know, because you can't do personal risk assessment anymore. Now, during this lull in cases is the time to make a permanent decision about what kind of things you're going to do and not do and then hold to it and stick to it. And it's like one of those kinds of creepy moments where you're like, wow, that was really weird of her to be doing that in the middle of the sort of summer where things were not so bad, encouraging people to lock in a kind of perspective. Um, no, I mean, it wasn't weird. It was totally consistent. It's the the message, as we talked about at the time, was like, what you're still doing this like what are you gonna fucking do it forever 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, don't be like basically right. saying like, don't be a wuss or something like stop, like stop it. Go ahead and go get exposed or whatever. Like stop, you know, stop worrying about it. Right. And it, and then it's like the, the sort of fact of the matter is, is that at the end of the day, what you really have in terms of like a, a supposed federal response is just the like rebranding of the things that they've tried previously over the past year and the further rolling back of like information and data surveillance systems, which like in the first place were not really helpful in terms of protecting people at a community level. Like the fact of the matter is that the tools that they're rolling back that were available in order to sort of help people make these individual risk assessment frameworks kind of feel workable, that's not even available going like moving forward. And so, you know, what you have is then this kind of just, oh, well, we'll just like reframe things as being okay and the you know we've made these pledges and we've made these commitments and we're going to do these wonderful things and everything's going to be handled and taken care of and it's a real demand i think for people to look away at, as hard as they can yeah i mean can we dig into that even more because i think i'm i'm really i was going to say fascinated but more like enraged to the point of <laughs> <laughs> Try not to black out in rage, but like the, the manufacturing of a new level of consensus right now, in particular, this sort of the work that's going in and you're seeing this just sort of fully concerted and coordinated effort to convince everyone that we need to always, always, always um, make do with less and less every single year from now on. And of course, that's that's the that's the sort of plan around COVID, but it's actually very obvious. And I think it's becoming so obvious right now that that is the plan in general about yeah. healthcare, right? And it's like, well, no, actually, the only ex the only expected tendency you can have around healthcare, you know, is that we'll always, always invest less, we'll always, you know, be doing less, we'll always be shrinking our commitment to public health over time, as if it's some sort of natural tendency, um, you know, of the market or of American culture or whatever. And, you know, I think that really, you know, calls on people to, to make all of these kinds of really perverse sorts of statements, but they are really consistent in that regard. Um, but I'm, but I'm sort of, you know, interested in particular, you know, where we're getting to this sort of weird tridemic, um, you know, discourse right now, the idea that, you know, COVID and influenza and RSV are all circulating virulently at the same time, which, you know, has a sort of clickbait element to it, but actually the messaging is to flatten the differences between them as if Absolutely. like, well, actually, if there's anything bad about all three of them circulating in the first place, what's bad is that we cared too much about COVID for the first two years and we tried too hard to take care of people. And now we're being punished for actually trying to exercise public health. So actually, it would be better for us to invest less in public health going forward because actually taking care of vulnerable people or taking care of anyone is bad. Um, like, I'm really frustrated um, with, you know, this new shift in the way that COVID is being equated to other respiratory viruses. But I'm also really frustrated with this sort of concept of immunity debt, which I would love to get into. And just to add on to that, the way the kind of, you know, collective manipulation uh, around hospital and healthcare capacity, right? This, you know, sort of sets that like, well, um, almost every single hospital network in the country, I'm like every single like specific institution is just like 
buckling constantly, you know, and especially pediatric wards are just like on the brink every single day and have been nonstop for months. And this sort of interesting dynamic where the response to that is like, on the one hand, truly like, don't think about it, right? Don't think about the fact that if you need an ambulance in North America, because this is happening in Canada too, like it could take hours for an ambulance to come to your house. And even if it comes to your house and fetches you and takes you to the hospital, you'll probably just sit in the hospital driveway, you know, for like many, many more hours. And like that, this is not like something to think about. In fact, if anyone thinks about it too much, it gets blamed on, well, it's the fault of people who wanted us to take better care of each other early on in the pandemic. That's why now the healthcare system, I mean, it's incredibly insulting, but it's actually seems really deliberate to me. And it's been making me think a lot about, you know, part of it has to do more broadly with the rationalization of mass death, um, you know, and that's not a new particular phenomenon, but there seems to be this kind of intensification and this sort of borrowing, you know, from the way um, that, you know, the way that the public is encouraged to take up an imaginary relationship, say, to something like mass incarceration. The fact that we know there's just this extreme level of violence um, that is sort of knitted into the everyday world we live in, but jails and prisons are this imagined elsewhere, you know, where, where only a certain kind of people go, not regular people, right? And so you don't really have to Think about the fact that you're actually very proximate to a jail or a prison all the time or that they're, you know, that, you know, people come in and out of them in the same way. It's like, I feel like we're being coached to think of the healthcare system as this sort of weird place that exists liminally. And it's like, well, that's just for sick people, right? And so if they're there, it's probably because they didn't get their booster and they're bad. Or actually the people who are there, it's the fault of everyone who wanted health, um, you know, measures and health protections in the first place that led to this trident, right? But there's something really kind of perverse around like, you know, it's very Wizard of Oz. It's very like, don't look behind the curtain. Don't pay attention to the man there, you know, where it's just like, okay, so you can't really like go to an emergency room anymore, but NBD and like, actually, if you want to resolve that issue, you are somehow at fault for causing it in the first place. I mean, there's something really, I know this has been building up for years, obviously, and the chickens coming home to roost are very, you know, old ones, but, but there's something really intense about that right now. And I just have to imagine in concert with this sort of complete drop off in reporting and data and lack of messaging beyond corporate ads. I mean, what are, you know, it's like, so how are you supposed to really even take up a different relationship to this kind of unfolding uh, event of mass death? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up the kind of carceral uh, relationship here, because one of the things that I think is like just absolutely infuriating is the kind of positioning that the Biden administration is taking on, you know, oh, this this transition, it's not going to be orderly because we don't have the funding from co from Congress. And, oh, we need to, like, get the private market and get these private businesses and get bosses to pledge and take this challenge, you know, this kind of total push of everything um, into the, the realm of the kind of uh, privatized sphere in terms of COVID. To contrast that with the way that they've encouraged the use of, like, for example, like the American Rescue Plan funds for spending on police, courts, prisons, right. jail systems is like it's just incredibly frustrating. And, and because you see this kind of language of like 
public health being employed by these local districts in order to get their, um, you know, spending approved. Mm. Here's an example that uh, was in a recent report in September from the Marshall Project. Onietta, Alabama, said their purchase of new tasers with longer ranges would mean, quote, officers will not have to get so close to the perpetrator. Danville, Virginia, plans to spend more than $1.3 million to expand their fleet to allow for proper sanitization of vehicles. Oh my God. Ken Larking, city manager of Danville, said having additional police cars means officers can take them home after work and not worry about sharing unsanitized vehicles with other officers. You know, the idea of basically like, oh, like we can invest in longer range tasers on the basis of COVID protections, but we can't, you know, it's just so disingenuous, right, to have these sort of two framings of like, oh, you know, we've got no money to spend. And yet all of the money that we could possibly spend in terms of public health is going to be like put into these carceral assets, essentially, and to just continuing to build up things like body scanners, long range tasers, more trucks for cops. Like this is the kind of um, this is what public health sort of is to the Biden administration is just like a continuation of like funding for the police state, which is, you know, one of his favorite things to do. Right. And well, so, I mean, haters will say basically like, oh, the Biden administration's hands are tied. Like, right. They haven't gotten this funding that we've alluded to or whatever, which obviously, as we've talked about before, is bullshit in the first place, because it's like, I mean, they've they've set up the conditions in the first place for not taking the pandemic seriously, which then obviously gives carte blanche to Congress and other and whoever to basically be like, yeah, why would we, you know, continue to fund that? Um, despite the fact that obviously, again, Democrats control the White House right. and both chambers of Congress. Mm-hmm. So they could fucking do this if they actually tried and they clearly have They're like, I tied thing, myself to a chair and I can't get up now. <laughs> the last, but I guess like the last thing that I will say, maybe the last thing that we can just uh, mention about this fall plan is to sort of answer some of uh, those maybe protestations or whatever about like, oh, but the funding, uh, I think there's one bullet point here in particular to highlight uh, that shows just kind of how ab- absurd um, that is in, in terms of how you know, narrowly or how, how little they're doing, I guess, to do anything on the pandemic still. But also, I guess, to highlight that, you know, for example, the one thing that we really haven't said about this is the entire thing, the entire fall plan is framed around their fall plan to expand booster uptake, like to expand the uptake of the new booster, not to, you know, do any other kind of mitigation um obviously not no to layered like protection bring masks back masking or masks back not to reduce the amount of infections or not to reduce the amount of deaths we know for instance from the washington post that the biden administration is openly expecting between 30 and seventy thousand deaths over the winter at least right mm-hmm. um and biden himself said in those comments on october 25th we expect the daily amount of deaths to rise as the winter goes on And so, again, you know, they're doing this vaccine only strategy. And, you know, if you really think that the only problem is Congress and congressional funding, let me hit you with this bullet point, which I think is by far my favorite. uh, And again, probably the like the last thing that we'll highlight, but my favorite thing from this fall plan. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is doubling down on its efforts to reach older Americans about the updated vaccine. 
In the next week, Medicare will send a second email reminder to the 16 million people who have signed up to receive Medicare oh, emails shit. with information about the COVID-19 vaccines and Two how to get emails. them. Two whole emails. They're doubling Powerful. down. Wow. Literally. You don't need congressional. First of all, you don't need congressional funding to send an email Incredible. from fucking CMS. Second... Okay, there have been two emails about the updated booster. Do you know how many fucking emails Medicare recipients get about Medicare Advantage plans? Mm -hmm. Do you know how many fucking physical mailers we've gotten in this house from Medicare itself? Mm -hmm. Not even from the third party plans that sell them, send them from Medicare itself promoting medicare advantage plans that's a fucking mailer that's not an email sandwiched between like ten thousand other emails that say ethel i'm so fucking worried you have to donate five dollars to me tonight or else like you know uh dr oz is going to like win and rule pennsylvania or something you know what i mean like <laughs> no anyway just just saying like the, there's so much more that that could be done i know that also obviously in this fall uh you know fall plan or whatever they do talk about wanting to do community pop-up vaccination events i think that's great i'd also think that it's a problem though that like so far the only you know example that we have of that is that they like did a pop-up event at like a fucking nascar gathering you know yeah. what i mean so and I, I mean i think one of the things too is is that and this is probably the best place to move on to uh, talking about immunity debt and this whole sort of discourse around the resurgence in RSV and, and kids getting sick and this kind of blaming pandemic protections for making things worse. Um, because this is this is part of this framework, right, where the pandemic is moving forward at a steady temporal pace that doesn't actually reflect like the state of the virus in the world around us, but it reflects the desire that's been in place for a long time to sort of end the pandemic on a timely schedule, to have this really not go into a third year. And I think that that is so evident in sort of why things like the discourse of like the lockdowns are worse than the disease that's reemerging or this kind of framework of immunity debt that we owe now we've got to pay and you know a sort mm. of debt for the protection that we you know had the first couple of years it both builds into we love debt don't we folks we love mm -hmm. debt we love it so much you know and it, it builds into this idea right of of like the pandemic is sort of moving forward like we've paid for it now we now the bill is due and like covid is fucking over and this is really in some ways a kind of disingenuous framing, which we'll get into in a, a bit, but it does also kind of frame the whole COVID response as destiny. Well, I just have to say, I, I, I mean, a lot of things make me annoyed. Um, a lot of things, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about things that I don't like, um, but immunity <laughs> debt has really, can I just say, really been pushing my buttons lately. Um, you know, and it's because it, it combines two words that I have so many issues with. I mean, immunity as a concept is just so complex. Uh, mm -hmm. And I just happen to have been trained in grad school by someone who wrote a whole book about the history of where the idea immunity even comes from and, and how 
confusing the notion of an immune system is just conceptually. But setting that aside, here we have immunity with our favorite other word, debt, right? And so it's actually an economic metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not actually a scientific claim being made, at least not one that hasn't been completely restructured economically. And so what is the debt that we are supposedly enjoined to pay back, right? And the debt is is the debt of having done something, you know, that ostensibly good, having taken the time to make some minimal efforts towards care, right? And it's interesting to me kind of reading through the articles. So immunity gap or immunity debt, you know, as a concept, just to sort of spell it out is this kind of notion that because particularly of lockdowns, but also because of masking and actually greater sort of efforts at sanitation, hand washing maybe, and also um, cleaning of surfaces, you know, in in the public sphere, that there was this sort of very measurable uh, drop off in both influenza, right, but some other respiratory viruses, you know, some rhinoviruses, and certainly RSV in particular, this virus that, you know, tends to affect infants and children. Uh, And so some of that has to do, of course, with schools being closed for some period of time. Um, But this sort of notion that, you know, there are, in particularly in the case of RSV, right, that's where this kind of idea of immunity debt is coming, which is to say that, generally speaking, infants and children tend to be exposed to this virus quite early on in life, um, you know, sort of just statistically, right, often before age two. Uh, And that there's, you know, a kind of exposure driven immunity that can be important, you know, in sort of not really necessarily ensuring that you don't ever get sick again, because most people are supposedly exposed to RSV very frequently. But actually, it's a statistical question. It is this sort of economic number, right? If, if, If the kind of regular exposure of people at the right time holds steady, right, then it just sort of drives the kind of incidence of extreme illness, it kind of spreads it out in a more predictable manner. So it's not necessarily like reducing the amount of illness in the world, it's just making it more predictable over time. And so the idea of the immunity debt is sort of like, well, we failed, right, in one sense by protecting people from being exposed to something like RSV. And so now all of these young people all of these children don't have, haven't had that kind of exposure and they're all getting sick now. And that's why this healthcare system is overwhelmed. Right. And there's just so many things that really bother me about that. I mean, the principal one is this kind of economic sense, right. That it's wrong to imagine we could ever live in a world right, where, where viral circulation has actually been reduced in a meaningful way or widespread illness has been reduced. Because the problem here is not that children get sick or get extremely ill. The problem is they're getting too ill all at once instead of them getting ill consistently year after year, right? And it's just like, that's a real intrusion of the economic into a kind of discussion that has the veneer of being about science and medicine. And then maybe the second thing too is that really bothers me is this sort of jump from RSV to the other illnesses. This is this flattening effect that we've been talking about, right? Where I just see people now talking and taking up this concept and speaking about it, reporting about it as if we're all two years old, right? So there's this sort of sense that we all have, we we do not all have immunity debt in this way. People are talking about things like influenza and COVID through the same concept when that's clearly just like 
empirically inaccurate to do. COVID does not work that way. That's like a kind of misinformation that circulates quite widely though, right? That it's like actually better to, you know, continue to get infected by COVID-19 over and over again uh, in order to build up some sort of really robust immunity that there's just like, you know, month after month, year after year, we never get any data (laughs) showing that. But just this idea, right, that actually a healthier or better society is one in which people are getting ill and are exposed to viruses all the time. Um, And the most important thing about that is economic, that it be predictable. So we can build a really minimal public health infrastructure that can respond to predictable, constant kind of slow death and illness instead of having to actually respond to what is happening in the world where there are acute flare-ups or where there is just absolutely rampant circulation um, that, you know, has to do with the fact that we don't have public health, you know, infrastructure in the first place. So, so you know, that is, is, is really kind of what is just sort of driving me up the wall. This sort of idea that we're, we're stuck in an economic debt right now that we have to pay off, but also this taking this one narrow question of this one virus and just like using it to reimagine everything that we're talking about these days. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's important to to underline is that the idea of immunity gap, this has existed for a, a long time within like public health frameworks in terms of especially mm-hmm. describing, you know, when you have a vaccine campaign, like for for measles, for example, or for polio, like your vaccination campaign, like depending on how you reach people and what the timing is and sort of where outbreaks are, right, that's going to affect the way that the immunity develops throughout the population. This is particularly also like a really important idea for people who do farm animal like veterinary medicine, because when you have like whole herds of cows and chickens, you have to be careful about like making sure to stop diseases from spreading throughout naive populations that, you know, are born on regular intervals and stuff like that. And so this kind of idea of like immunity gap, right? Like usually in in terms of like what it helps us think about, right, is not the idea of like, oh, everybody should then just go like lick dirt and expose themselves to microbes to build the immune system that way, which is like how it's being taken. What it, What it's more talking about is that like when you do these programs to build immunity through vaccination, you have to be really sort of targeted about making sure that you're stopping the disease from spreading as you're doing these uh, vaccination campaigns, right? So the idea of like immunity gap is this longstanding idea, but the idea of immunity debt, that these kinds of gaps are not just something that needs to be taken into consideration and planned for, for example, in a vaccination campaign or something like that, or in an epidemic or pandemic situation, The immunity debt idea is new, and it only appears starting in May of 2021 through this preprint paper. Uh, It's commentary from doctors in France that was published in The Lancet. And one of the things that they uh, were sort of arguing in this, this opinion piece, essentially, was that the kind of gap that was created when people, quote unquote, avoided each other during the pandemic that that had a kind of long-term consequence that we weren't aware of at the time. And this is where the immunity debt comes in. And the idea is that because we avoided each other, quote-unquote, we failed as a population to maintain and build up immunity against all the sort of normal viruses that we come into contact. So it's directly blaming, basically, 
you know, masking, social distancing, quarantine, isolation, closing schools on um, not just sort of creating the current waves of resurgent things like RSV or flu that we're seeing right now, but that it also has this kind of long-term consequence toward regular life. Uh, and, and what we saw really basically was that this idea is proposed in this paper and very quickly it's, it's taken up by the Wall Street Journal in a piece that comes out in June of 2021 called post-COVID-19 world risks having to pay off immunity debt. And, you know, this this article, the second, second line is, as regular life resumes, society may find payments on that debt coming due in the form of worse than normal viral disease outbreaks. And so what you have is this very compelling story of like children who are who are sort of hospitalized, who are suffering. And and the kind of question that the report is asking is like, perhaps we maybe, you know, did this to ourselves. Maybe we shot ourselves in, in the foot here and that uh, lockdowns really were worse than the virus. And so you have this kind of validation of a position that we've seen for a long time throughout the pandemic of this kind of natural infection, herd immunity uh framework, right, which really misunderstands the way that the immune system works. And so it's this very simplistic kind of framing of like, oh, the immune system is only built in one direction. And the way that the immune system works is like a kind of like, uh, you know, the more you put in, the more you get out kind of situation, which is uh, really kind of hilarious as a person with an autoimmune disease that's like a post viral (laughs) disease, because For example, like things like my disease happen when you're exposed to a virus and the body sort of overreacts uh, with an immune response that's disproportionate to the virus's proliferation in the body. And then what's sort of created in in some of these mistakes are things called autoantibodies, which are antibodies that actually attack the body itself and cause inflammation systemically. And so you have this kind of idea of like, oh, well, immunity debt, right? We're like, oh, we've got to make sure that everybody is exposed to their childhood viruses and, you know, touches all the nasty microbes and everything, you know, that we sort of touch out in the world when we're we're together um, in order to sort of construct a competent immune system, which sort of in a hilarious way puts the onerous on people who have autoimmune diseases, almost like blaming them for not having enough competent exposures to sort of maintain (laughs) their immune system. But and this is a kind of idea that like is pretty popular in the wellness arena in terms of um, sort of ideas about uh, how to keep kids safe without, you know, engaging in vaccination where you have uh, like parents doing chicken pox parties, for example, where they're like exposing all their kids and they're trying to avoid Western medicine by you know, intentionally infecting people. And and what what we have is sort of this very like almost like supplement industry understanding of what the immune system is, like the idea of like, oh, everything that happens like is about boosting the immune system and it's about increasing the response and that that's inherently a good thing. But the fact of the matter is, is that ultimately pandemic protections, right, like are not things that are exceptional toward protecting people from COVID. And I think a lot of people sort of take COVID and silo it off into its own category and kind of play it against other diseases as if, you know, mitigations that work for COVID, for example, like that they're above and beyond what we would do for other diseases because they're not something that's like a regular force of habit or a social um, norm in the United States, for example. But the idea that like, you know, we're somehow creating 
not just a problem for kids now who are sick, but a problem that our society could deal with in perpetuity as a result of the decisions that we made to protect people from COVID, which were at best quite minimal, is incredibly damaging, I think, as a long-term framework. And what worries me- bullshit is important. That's the highlight here. Yeah, I mean, what worries me is that you see these kinds of like extremely shallow, as already said, bullshit frameworks for for sort of understanding even what it means to get sick or be infected with something just proliferate right now as a kind of um, both as a justification and as a validation for people, a kind of confirmation bias that, oh, actually, it's totally fine to continue to do nothing because above and beyond COVID not being a big deal, what this framework does is it says, oh, and also, you know, getting infected with other things is good. And now we need to like, not just, you know, not mask, but we need to decisively not mask for reasons of boosting the immune system, which is just like Dr. Oz level misunderstanding of how the body works. Well, and importantly, should another novel virus come along, should another novel, you know, disease turn into a pandemic or something, then... you know, basically ready-made argument for like, well, we're not doing that again. Yeah. Right. Which is just like, you know, just to really double down on this point, not even what the person who coined uh, immunity debt even ever meant. You know, it's like if you go back and look, this is, you know, a paper um, led by pediatric researcher Robert Cohen um, that was, you know, published in 2021 and, you know, you go and sit through and read about it. And Cohen, you know, is, is researching in France. So the paper is mostly about France and is trying to predict sort of how all of these other viral or bacterial uh, kinds of uh, illnesses will perhaps, you know, surge, you know, as, um, as pandemic restrictions are lifted or public health infrastructure is rescinded. And the actual conclusion of the paper has a lot to do with uh, how weak public health infrastructure is. It's that like, well, France might be more vulnerable to what this paper is calling rebound effects, um, precisely because there isn't a really robust vaccination schedule for all of these common viruses for which we do actually have often, sometimes there are these vaccines for them, right? And so the paper is actually, you know, I think what's so helpful B, is you're drawing our attention to how, as this concept has sort of been translated, filtered, and diluted in the media and also sort of in public health punditry speak, right? There's been a shift towards this kind of individual fantasy of the immune system that you need to go, you know, it's like only two degrees of separation away from like, take vitamin D and zinc, uh, you know, (laughs) just like boost yourself, boost yourself, right? It's your debt that you have to pay as an individual, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but actually, public health, you know, as a field doesn't work at the individual level at all. It's all about populations. And so the paper actually is like, well, at the population level, right, if there is anything like an immunity debt, it's it's just because of, you know, this change in human behavior um, and the failure to get ahead of it, which would be to, you know, put in more public health infrastructure to prevent that rebound effect, right? And so that's actually you know, what the sort of scholarship at least opens the door to, um, you know, not, I'm, I'm not sure that that's what, you know, Cohen and, and the team necessarily might think, or I'm not sure what they're out there advising, but in any case, right, it's like, it's been sort of 
twisted again <laughs> when it's like this is not a discourse about how the immune system works. It's a social discourse. It's about uh, human behavior and it's about how we organize the world and whether or not we want to sort of think about how would you mitigate all of these other bacteria and viruses that, you know, tend to circulate one way, but whose circulation has been changed, right? And so there could be vaccinations for some of them, right? So actually a lot of this paper is worried about like, you know, chickenpox, right, resurging. Um, but then, you know, for the things that we don't have vaccines for, for example, RSV, right? Well, what would those mitigations look like? Hmm, masks, uh-oh, what a shame, right? Oops. And so instead, Couldn't we're seeing, do that. <laughs> yeah, so instead of seeing like, oh, okay, well, the takeaway is that, you know, I think the concept of immunity debt is just stupid. Like it's a bad concept. It's very <laughs> misdirecting, right? It tends mm -hmm. to really bring this economic model back in. But even setting that aside, right? If we really wanted to be generous to this, to this literature, the scholarly literature, we could say, well, okay, it clearly means that abandoning, <laughs> you know, public health um, infrastructure and abandoning things like, you know, universal masking and whatnot is a really foolish idea because it will lead to this sort of very certain um, explosion in illness that actually could be present prevented, but because we don't want to do masking anymore, and we also want to style this debt as inevitable and actually use it to weaponize it against the fact that we ever did anything uh, even minimally meaningful to try and prevent the spread of COVID. We'll just drop the mask part and now everything is wash your hands. Just wash your hands. Hey, you could just wash your hands out of every... It's like, <laughs> I'm just waiting for... I'm being glib here, but I'm just waiting for like five years from now, you know, when the CDC is like, are you worried about, you know, the extreme levels of pollution circulating in the world because of the climate crisis? Have you tried washing your hands? Just wash your hands. You could wash your hands straight out of anything you want. You could wash your hands out of, you know, poverty. You could wash your hands out of fascism. You can just wash your hands, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, so this is this is what happens. Obviously, science reporting has been a weak point for years at this point, but it's just really I'm just so annoyed. I mean, obviously, I think I was being too generous to the paper there, um, just because I was trying to read into it. I think the problem actually originates in immunity debt as a concept. Like bad yeah. idea should not have changed immunity gap to immunity debt. That was just really annoying. I'm they thought they were being so clever. Like it, it was yeah. clearly a kind of construction where they were like, oh, here's a real edgy way to sort of explain the potential consequences. Like here, let me appropriate the economic lens in order to really, you know, drive home the point that like this kind of idea of like a debt on the future survival of society is dependent yeah. on not masking. I mean, I, I think, you know, in some ways it's I I think you you we were a little too nice to Dr. Cohen because he's one of those people who's on the record talking about, you know, Oh, well, like the rise in allergies in uh, high income uh, countries yeah. is due to like increased sanitation. But the fact of the matter is, is that these kinds of changes that he's basically saying, like two years of masking would result in like a forever change to the immune system of children, which is like actually a claim that people like Vinay Prasad have been making mm -hmm. recent in recent weeks, um, you know, these kinds of changes take fucking generations. They take like three, four generations. This does not happen in an immediate moment. Like even the eugenicists were not this silly about how they did their bullshit work, yeah. like about the weaponization of like 
the immune system and genes and evolution and, and social behavior on health outcomes. And, you know, it's one of those things where the the kind of research in and of itself like seems to exist as more of a position paper against the idea of a lockdown, even in its sort of warning of like, oh, we have these other, you know, public health issues that are sort of coming to the forefront as well. And I think this has always been a kind of framework of, you know, if we don't do something for one thing, we shouldn't do something for anything. And mm -hmm. it's a it's a race to the bottom to kind of bottom out um, what's already a kind of infrastructure that's been gutted over the last two years as a result of advocacy for things like herd immunity uh, through things like Emily Oster's work and the piece in The Atlantic, uh, your unvaccinated kid is like a vaccinated grandma. You know, these kinds of ideas, they're just iterative in a sense and immunity debt and in uh, the way that it's being used and the way that it was coined in the context of how it's being reproduced by the media the real point here is to sort of imply that we are, as a society, going to be facing a punishment for having masked. And that's a fundamentally dangerous idea, I think, as already mentioned, thinking about like as we encounter, you know, further waves of COVID, further evolution in COVID and potentially like more new respiratory viruses as a result of the same processes um, in society and like with climate change that led to COVID becoming, you know, a novel virus that became a global pandemic, like when we face the next respiratory pandemic, what is going to, I think, be there right from day one is this immunity debt framework that you're going to see people sort of waving as an excuse to do nothing in the same way that mm -hmm. you saw people saying, oh, well, we need to reach herd immunity by just all getting infected. Let's mm -hmm. send the young people out to get infected. I think I think more than that, though, just, you know, to to be extremely blunt about it, like the other thing is that especially in media framings of what immunity debt means um it's always done in this way that imagines as so many people often seem to do that we had some sort of like two-year draconian lockdown police state situation in the united states which like absolutely never manifested i mean if we ever did something called like a lockdown it would happen for an enormously brief period of time but in any case the main thing I, I'm interested in, I guess, about this is why this is reemerging at this particular moment. I understand why and how it sort of so easily emerged in the summer of 2021, because what was happening, right? We also had this moment of like the CDC, for example, in the summer of 2021 or like late spring 2021 had rolled back masking recommendations. More people were coming into contact with each other unmasked, et cetera, et cetera. And I think... It's interesting to see now this concept of immunity debt sort of like reemerging and it being, I think, this quite convenient, I'd say, uh, metaphor for people to be just repeating, especially right now. I mean, really, to the point, the reason I mention uh, this is because I think a lot of people kind of have looked at this and said, like, oh, there's this new term or something like people think this is just like a, a totally novel thing that just happened over the last couple of weeks. It's just that it's become much more prevalent all of a sudden to see people talking about right. this, especially people who mm -hmm. were like anti-lockdown all, all along or whatever. And I think the reason I say it's convenient is because it's also happening, I think, quite conveniently at this time when to, you know, redirect and focus blame back on the Biden White House for a second. It's also happening at this time where essentially if 
there's one element of the Biden talking points that are not sloppy, right? If there's one part, if there's one part of the COVID strategy and their COVID communications, at least framework, that's not completely sloppy. It's the fact that they are leaning hard into actually this conflation that the immunity debt framework also does, which is the conflation of COVID flu and RSV and other things into just sort of the big catch-all of, you know, respiratory viruses as though we're no longer in a pandemic and as though basically these things are flattened. My, you know, the, the things that I'm pointing to for this, my sort of proof of this are things like in that Biden presentation that I was, that we were talking about earlier, much earlier, uh, he says, for instance, quote, and the weather is getting colder, people will be spending more time indoors and contagious viruses like COVID are going to spread considerably more easily, right? The like COVID mm-hmm. as, and this is like very early on in the speech. Also on October 21st, um, Rochelle Walensky, or at least Rochelle Walensky's Twitter account. So like her intern or whoever <laughs> wearing like a Rochelle Walensky mask tweeted, um, respiratory viruses are on the rise in the United States. Take preventative actions to stop the spread of viruses like flu, RSV and COVID. And then suggesting the following to combat this, which is get vaccinated, stay home if you're sick. And number three, as Jewel said, wash your hands, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is hilarious. You know, no masking, nothing about masks, nothing, any of that. And I do think it's very interesting. I'll probably talk more about this in COVID year three, actually, um, when that comes around. But I do think it's very interesting that if you think about it, like in January, one of the big things that like uh, a bunch of sort of like liberal public health people did a lot of, you know, hand clapping about was this thing from, uh, I think, Ezekiel Emanuel and Celine Gounder. And I think Michael Osterholm was on mm-hmm. it, too, which is this like big, you know, they, there was this big push in, uh, I think, mid-January or something like a couple of opinion pieces came out and like there was a whole there was a whole like white paper and everything from this team of researchers saying essentially like. To, to aim for the new normal, <laughs> we need to, you know, get all of these things down. Like we need to get the number of general, like the, the impact of all respiratory viruses like flu and RSV, et cetera, and COVID down. And we have to look at that like aggregate number instead and take precautions for that. And it's very interesting seeing how literally if there's one thing that was brought forward from that other than I guess like the sort of obsession with the um, saying, you know, we don't have to mask if we just like do higher air circulation indoors or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's one big impact of that, I think it is that like actually we are now sort of seeing the reabsorption of that position of like that's what the new normal looks like. Mm-hmm. Here's the roadmap to new normal, the roadmap to new normal to the new normal or whatever. Um, the roadmap to normalization is okay, so now it's, you know, COVID and flu season Mm -hmm. or something. It's COVID, flu, RSV. It's this, all three of them. And what's obviously the main point of that? I mean, it doesn't, it's not the fucking Voynich manuscript to like figure this out. You know, it's (laughs) like if you conflate, and we've talked about this before with like the, the comparisons between COVID and flu, but like if you conflate COVID, flu, and RSV, well, what did we do for COVID that generally speaking in the United States has never been done really even like a severe flu season for like flu, 
or RSV, we don't have universal masking. We don't like commonly mask mm-hmm. for these other things. We've so deeply normalized the idea as everywhere, every everywhere from um, you know what you guys are talking about with like oh well the actual impacts of the mitigations that we took against COVID were worse than COVID itself. Mm-hmm. There's like that end of it. The other end of it is like well at best you know masks were useful for a while but then all of a sudden like uh you know there's the like deus ex machina of the variants became so contagious mm-hmm. line that mm-hmm. it made masks effectively useless which is horse shit Just as complete you know, crap. we've talked about before mm-hmm. but these you know obviously these things all are mutually reinforcing mm-hmm. of one another and at the end of the day as i mentioned you know if there's one actually novel and not just like totally reheated rehashed line coming from the biden administration it is legitimately they have leaned into this Mm -hmm. um it's not actually covid anymore think about covid as in relationship to the flu and rsv and you never cared about those before right (laughs) So why would you care now? You yeah. never cared about the people who died about the, from them before. You never cared about the, in, in 2019, 2020, like the 2019, 2020 flu season, right? 199 kids died. Like there were 199 pediatric uh, flu deaths, right? There was one the next year when there were COVID precautions in place. Like yeah. w- one. Now, obviously compare that with the fact that like, uh, I think now the pediatric COVID deaths thing, uh, the number is like at least it's over 1,800 mm-hmm. now. I mean, these are not the same. That's just pediatric deaths, obviously. But I'm just saying, like, you know. Yeah. No, and I think the thing, too, is that what we saw was like in mid-March of 2022, the Biden administration and the CDC said, OK, we don't need to mask in school anymore and kids can stay in school. And that was a kind of way of like declaring winter over. It was a couple weeks after they had changed from the old map system, the community transmission level to the new happy green pastel community level map that was based on hospitalizations and not on raw testing numbers. And I feel like that kind of move that we saw mid-March 2022 and they said, okay, and like kids can go to school and they don't need masks and it's really we're all good to go. And what we're facing now is kind of the return to winter. And I think the reason why this kind of immunity debt discourse is so resurgent right now and so all over the place is because really um, not only are we facing like a a lot of death right now, um, particularly in children when it comes to like COVID and we have over the last couple of years, it's very obvious now that COVID is a problem to kids, despite many years of people working overtime to try and hide that and sort of minimize that framework. But beyond that, like kids are actually getting very sick from these other viruses. You've got pediatric ICUs overwhelmed. And to have that be the context that we're going into the winter with no masking requirements in schools and sort of masking being discouraged in general, I think it's no surprise that this idea of immunity debt is sort of being stood up as a warning, trying to threaten people like, listen, this is why you actually shouldn't mask, which is part of this kind of big bullshit mythology of like the idea of like a fundamentally healthy body politic that just doesn't fucking exist at the end of the day. Well, and that's how we get to, I mean, I think that's 
that's the challenge for this kind of wide scale rationalization is that, again, it has to succeed in reclassifying so much illness. <laughs> and yes. that is actually just like logistically very challenging. And I think it really culminated for me in that, uh, you know, in these articles we've been seeing about, you know, these these mysterious large scale um, outbreaks, like the the one, you know, the article in The Hill um, on, on October you know, 25th with the headline, 500 plus still sick with flu-like symptoms at Virginia High School. And, you know, I think... <laughs> You know, there's this sort of, I've observed a sort of glib response, you know, sometimes on social media to some of these articles being like, well, you know, they're just trying to lie to us, but obviously all of these people have COVID and it's like, well, actually a lot of them might also have these other (laughs) illnesses. Like it's not actually clear that it is COVID or not in the case of this particular article about this high school in Fredericksburg, Virginia, you know, health officials actually suspect, you know, that it's influenza A, but the, the point is like, well, how would we know? We would have to test, right? In order to determine if something is COVID or if something is influenza and that's being sort of broadly discouraged. And then, you know, in this article, the Virginia Department of Health is of course consulted. And so the article says that in the midst of flu season and the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, the Virginia Department of Health is urging students and staff to practice frequent and thorough hand washing (laughs) and to stay home if they're sick or know someone who has a confirmed or suspected case of the flu. And that like that paragraph to me just says it all right. It's like, okay, so, you know, maybe in fact, this is all a bunch of influenza, but you know, the one thing we could never do, we could never think about you know, children wearing masks in school, which would have helped prevent this outbreak in the first place. And so because we can't mask to stop COVID, we therefore can't mask to stop the flu or RSV and therefore, you know, reverse engineer backwards this whole logic. Therefore, COVID also isn't that bad because we wouldn't ever want to wear a mask to stop the flu. I mean, it's kind of this incredible reversible, like let's go back and forth. Like it's a closed loop of justification and rationalization, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's like, it's even worse to me than like, oh, we're being sold a lie that everyone just has mysterious flu-like symptoms. It's actually a lot more macabre than just that, I think. That's honestly the perfect thought to leave it on, Jules. I think that's so true. And I think we'll leave it there for this episode. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
I know you've added some context to the comment that the president made on 60 Minutes, but do you think that his comment saying the pandemic is over has contributed to the lack of uptake in uh, vaccinations for this this uh, new bivalent vaccine? Yeah, let me be very clear about this. Um, you know, majority of American adults go out and get the flu shot every fall. They don't do it because the president comes out and says we have a flu pandemic. Uh, 